Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. This is Congo, a new documentary film attempts to wrap its mind around the incomprehensible realities of the Democratic Republic of Congo almost 60 years after it was founded. At one point, commenting on one of the more incomprehensible recent events, a high-ranking military officer remarks, they will say, this is Congo. But when will they ask, why? Why is Congo like this? Where do we begin? Where can we begin? For as long as I can remember, the news out of Congo has been bad. But my memory of the news only goes back about two decades to when I started paying attention. The cycle of violence is a funny thing. It has its own momentum. People get swept up in it for personal reasons or manipulated by politicians fanning the flames of old resentments. Ask anyone on either side of a blood feud where it started, who threw the first stone, and when the sun goes down, they'll still be talking. Where does Congo's trouble begin? Why is the country in a seemingly unending state of war between marauding rebel groups and marauding government soldiers, the people's lives torn to shreds in between? And even if the people of Congo could fully trace this nightmare to its roots, how could they save the tree? My guest today is documentary filmmaker Daniel McCabe. His new film, This is Congo, asks all of these questions and more. First of all, I guess one of the big challenges in making a film like this for mostly American audiences is explaining the events without drowning everybody in exposition, right? Exactly, because it's so complicated. Yeah. It really depends on, on how you want to deliver that kind of contextualizing information. You know, some films accurately and cinematically can, can tackle these kind of archive-driven stories and, and really help paint a picture, but to try and merge that with, with a, a present-day or a verite kind of scene, it does start to get distracting sometimes, and, and it becomes a play of how do you, uh, how do you infuse this information while not pulling uh, your viewer out of that, that moment they're in. How much time did you spend in Congo? I'd been working in Congo since 2008. I initially went there as a, as a news photographer, a freelancer. So that was my, my introduction to the country was a, a conflict there in 2008. But then uh, kind of the unresolved questions and the place I was at in my career, I was left with, uh, with this, this need to, to tell the story, this desire to tell the story, and, uh, and, and I wasn't really able to do it as a photographer, and this is kind of where the film uh, began. The, the genesis of it uh, was to, to dig deeper and to understand the, the root causes beneath the conflict. I mean, the message I got growing up, and that I'm ashamed to say that probably a lot of American people get growing up was like this sort of general wash of horror out of Africa was just this idea that, oh, it's all a big, terrible mess. It's all terribly dysfunctional. You know, I recall my own family blaming it, you know, on entirely on corrupt governments, but the roots are deep. It, it, it's hard to sort out the causes and they don't, it doesn't just come down to any one individual or government. Especially in a place like the Congo, you know, you have these these variables where you need to, to wind the clock back and, and to look at what's what's kind of happened over the the history of the country. And and when you do that you start to identify these different variables that have uh, played a major role in creating this foggy confusing conflict. Yeah, I mean, like you, you know, you have, so at one point, and I think this is a really interesting moment in your film, you have a guy extremely articulate, is his name Lafontaine? He's, he's yeah. the head of a, he's the head of a rebel group that's against the central government of exactly. Congo. And one of many such groups. And he is walking you through the kind of like colonial and pre-colonial history, talking about Arab slave traders in the region, and then King Leopold of Belgium and, you know, the Belgian colony uh, in the Congo. And uh, he's very convincing, right? And at the same time, he's the representative, he's one of many of these warlords who claim to be motivated by sort of noble causes, the desire to liberate the people from a corrupt government, and who are at the same time just very much part of the, the problem. I'm glad you, you, you picked up on that because throughout the whole film, we, 
when I say we, the, the filmmaking team, specifically my, my editor, Elise Ardell Spiegel, we worked really hard to try and figure out ways of informing the viewer of, of the history of the country, which is intense and, and, and very dense. And then also to find these creative ways, metaphoric ways sometimes of infusing it in there. And, and he represents exactly that reality where, where in, in the Congo, for many of the Congolese, their, their trust in, whether it's the government or a rebel group or, or the leadership of their area, their trust has is, is been fractured. They, uh, they're, they're off balance. Uh, it's really confusing. Uh, there's a lot of propaganda and, and things like that. So he kind of embodies that where he gives a very accurate history, so much so that you trust him and he's charismatic in his delivery. But, right. uh, but in the end, you, you realize that he is exactly the manipulation device that he's warning the population against. Yeah, specifically he talks about, yeah, he says, he says like these people are like sheep, they'll follow anyone and you're sitting there thinking, okay, exactly. like you, right? Yeah, exactly. I think he even paints himself into a corner where in an interview with me, he says, you know, we got to watch out because people can be like sheep, they'll follow anybody. And then he's applying the same term except in an opposite way to the population later on in the day. So right. it's, uh, it's quite humorous, although... Uh, you know, the reality on the ground is just that, where it can seem trivial, but because of the lack of infrastructure, because of the amount of armed groups and, uh, and the, the place where people are at, you know, being, uh, being controlled in such a way, these tiny little humorous anecdotes are the reality for people on the ground where in, in that small area, in this example, the government control and rebel control can shift uh, on, uh, weekly. So it's it becomes confusing for the population, and, and they lose trust in, yeah. in anything besides what will get them to the next day. You spend some time in a refugee camp where people have fled their homes because of fighting that was there, and like conditions are not surprisingly atrocious. People are dying of like dysentery and stuff. And cholera, yeah. Cholera, yeah. I mean, I found myself thinking at some time, you know, at some points when I was looking at the sort of corrupt central government on the one side and these various rebel groups on the other, M23 is one of the biggest ones. Yep. And then there's a bunch of others, uh, all located sort of in the, in the east of Congo mostly, or? Yeah, I mean, if you really, if you look at where the resources are, that's where you'll find the armed groups. So it's not surprisingly con convenient that right, way. Right. And the resources are rich. I mean, I'm digressing a little, but like that, that's a, that's an important point here. Congo's intensely Congo mineral, rich, one of the most mineral rich nations on earth, I think an estimated 24 trillion in untapped resources. Including coltan, which I believe is useful for like electronics. Is yep. that? Yeah, that's kind of it, a hot one today where, uh, where the end user responsibility kind of comes home to a degree, but, but it's everything. Uranium, the, the uranium that was used in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs right. came from their, uh, you know, tropical hardwoods, uh, cobalt, copper, tin, I mean, everything. And so the sort of sad irony that does get pointed out in your film is that like there's all of this, these riches in the soil and the land. And at least for how, how many years would you say that these have been exploited? I mean, are we talking hundred yeah. years? Yeah, They've I mean, been exploited by outside powers or central governments that are absolutely as, as robbing the people. Yeah. As La Fontaine, as you brought up, kind of explains, he, he, quickly and concisely walks us through this this Arab slave trade. And prior to colonization, there was Arab slave traders coming in from the eastern part of the continent, uh, looting ivory and gold and slaves. So uh, uh, that, that all came to a kind of a close around the end of the 1800s. But this is when colonization and the rubber boom ramped up. This right. is what King Leopold's most famous for is his... Uh, exploitation of the rubber in the country. They're exploiting rubber and ivory, and their most common punishment is the lopping off of hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't make your quota, they take one of your hands. It's funny. We, we had a conversation a long time ago on this podcast. I had a conversation with a Harvard historian writing about Joseph Conrad and about his travels in the Belgian Congo. And, you know, and they were talking about some of the things that he, we were talking about some of the things that he saw on those journeys and that, you know, the, the, 
Africans that were loyal to Leopold would be recruited to be the enforcers, to be the sort of field bosses, as it were, and trained in the lopping off of hands and sending them back as sort of signs of compliance, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, when you look look back that far in Congo's history, uh, I mean, Congo is one of the most ethnically diverse countries in Africa. There's nearly 500 tribes, 500 ethnic groups, 500 languages. And not only in Congo or Africa, just throughout history, we have different tools we can use to manipulate people. Right. Ethnicity is one of them. Religion is another. You know, uh, money is another. So uh, all these uh, are very clearly have been employed in the Congo. And you bring up that example. Often they'll... uh, you know, there was a lot of favoritism uh, from one tribe over another where they'd, they'd pit two tribes against one another to keep them uh, kind of in a in conflict, which made right. them far more easier to control and, and dominate. So, uh, so it's quite insidious the way it begins. And then as we see Congo today and, and Congo kind of growing into today, we see those those traces back to those roots, these these uh, devices of control. of control. Exactly. Yeah. And because the country is so massive and has such poor infrastructure uh, and systems of communication and, you know, with all these armed groups, you know, hundreds of armed groups operating, perhaps not hundreds, but over a hundred in the East, I'm sure. You know, how, how can you put a finger on it? And, and especially with looking at the way we receive our media, our news today, you know, often if you can't sum it up in three minutes, then we're going to move on or, or we lose interest or it's just not worth it. It doesn't fit into that slot. I mean, I was thinking about several things while you were talking. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with the amputation thing because that is a very visible symbol of this history of coercion because it's still used, I know, by by rebel groups and by by sold I mean the the lopping off of arms and In so on disfigurement and things yeah like that. and then, you know and that that's a very specific kind of innovation if you want sure, to put it that sure. way it, which seems to have been inherited from colonialization and uh, yeah I you mean, know when you live under such brutal conditions for over a century you know yeah. this these realities become much more realistic, you know. And the, the refugee camps you see in the film, you know, you've got people living there nearly 20 years since the Rwandan genocide. So, right. you know, the, the lasting effect this has on uh, on the psyche, especially the psyche of, of the children or, or you know, younger uh, individuals, uh, that that stays with them forever. And, and it's, it's almost as if once we do find a, a lasting, realistic solution to the issues of the Congo... We then have to like maintain that stability uh, until the problems can like grow out of the the memory of of the people who are living within it. You know, that's a terrible moment in the film. The children that when they grow up in that environment, that you know, they grow up with a terrible anger. That you know, they they see the injustice around them. They see people they love killed. They see them. You know, they're unable to return to their homes, and that anger grows within them and flourishes in adulthood. Makes them that much more likely to, to take up uh, armed rebellion or be swayed into armed rebellion. Uh, those are very strong words from uh, the Taylor character in the film Hakiza when he's uh, at the funeral, right. funeral of his niece who dies of cholera in the camp because... Uh, because of uh, fleeing from conflict. You were talking about the you know strategies of control and money, tribe. What Re- else religion did you can religion. be one. In Congo, and not so much. They're almost entirely Christian. But uh, but in my mind, I see that in, in other places in the world. Here here in in our country, we we see like different devices being used to, to divide us and keep us kind of on our heels. So uh, I tend to, with, with things this confusing, I tend to always take a step back and try and look at the bigger picture because it, it becomes more of a universal kind of reality. Yeah, what are the what are the forces at work here as exactly. opposed to the, the like names and dates and places? I mean, those are important too, but... Although when we when we do get specific, it's it's hard not to get past the internal corruption of the country, which I think is probably the main issue, the uh, or, or certainly the first issue, major issue that needs to be needs tackled. to be addressed. Because even if you defeat armed groups, if you've got a corrupt leadership that's uh, leading a kleptocratic regime, you're not going to solve that. 
Yeah, I think Kusango uh, has a, a point. Kusango, no, because I should say Kusango is the, he's a former uh, military he's, commander. He's an active, he's an active, active colonel, but he, he's hopped on um, rebel side to government side three times over, and he acts as a kind of a shadowy narrator figure in the film. And that's a pseudonym, and he speaks with, uh, his voice is distorted, he speaks under anonymity, quote unquote, for security reasons. Exactly, says, yeah. yeah. But uh, but he highlights the point. Uh, a quote of his is where where corruption exi- or where, where there's corruption, development cannot exist, which is kind of the root of everything. You know, when when you have a military that's not receiving their salaries from the top coming down, how can you expect the soldiers to behave in a in a reasonable way when they're literally starving on the front lines and being abused? Uh, in intense ways, so and as you as as you point out in the film, soldiers are they're, so they're switching over to rebel groups, and then the, you know the the military is negotiating sometimes with the groups and bringing them back. Yeah, I mean, and, and then and then promoting them within the. Yeah, the, I mean, things have <laughs> reached such a level where you know you uh, the the repatriation process of these rebels because the rebellion armed rebellion is so rampant, they can't. just keep throwing rebels in prisons and and it wouldn't make sense anyway, but, uh, they don't have enough prisons. They don't have enough prisons and how, you know, in in a place that corrupt, (laughs) who's to say who's right or wrong. I mean, that's from my outside perspective, I see that as an issue, but yeah, they, they got a real problem with, uh, with dealing with these generations of people that, you know, the, the way things are handled are through Force. And all of these rebel groups are, or many of them anyway, are claiming, you know, that they want to oust the corrupt governments. But if they got in power, they would do the same. It's the cycle would likely continue. Yeah, it, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and that's that's uh, a big question. Often is is like, oh, how did you get access to these rebels? And it's like it, the rebels were easy. They ha- they wanted that platform. They wanted to. They wanted to to jump on their soapbox and and preach about how they're, you know. Kabila, the president's corrupt, blah, blah, blah. And in reality, come on. Right. These guys are uh, have an armed rebellion happening outside of a gold mine. Do the math. <laughs> right, you know? right, right, right. That brings us to, he's a hero in the yeah, army. Colonel Mamadou Ndala. Mamadou yeah. Ndala, who is, I just want to say, like, from my perspective as a viewer, and I know that I'm sure you were aware of this as the filmmaker, you know, he's an extremely compelling figure. He's an extremely positive, almost evangelical supporter of the central government and a kind of a visionary in the way that he talks about sort of unity for for Congo. And it's a very, um, it causes a lot of like cognitive dissonance for the viewer because of what we also are learning is the situation with the central government and and the president Kabila. We wanted to make a film that uh, about the Congo where where often we receive these films that are these talking heads spitting facts at us and and, and history bits and, and trying to point our attention towards these atrocities that have happened. But in, in this film, we really wanted the Congolese to speak for themselves and to allow them to, to have the stage and, and not be kind of guided to where we needed them to land. Uh, sort of avoiding a, a neo-colonial <laughs> absolutely, yeah. a- action or, or, or at least really. my, my, I baked that in as a, as a insurance policy <laughs> or a safety measure for, for myself. Uh, but in the case of, of Mamadou, you know, you see him sta- uh, steering us towards this uh, this very patriotic uh, government favoritism uh, when, when, as you say, we know the government's horrifically corrupt. But then, you know, through, throughout the course of the film, you, you start to see that, that start to wane and how his world starts to kind of cave in on itself uh, because of this blind faith that he has and, and, and whatever his, his own self-interest is with collaborating with me, the filmmaker. Kasango points out that maybe his fatal flaw is like vanity, wanting to be a rock star sure, of sure. sorts, which he he becomes a war hero. Of course, course he's still film. he's he's widely recognized as a national hero uh, among the people, and and he was young, you know, at the time of his death, he couldn't have been much more than thirty years old. So uh, so he was a young guy, and and I and and I think his his charismatic naivety was was very. Uh, Mature. I, mean, I don't know how to, you know, he, he had this very strong idea of how he had to be. He knew he was on camera. He's almost sp- speaking as if he's talking to the president directly. Yeah. And, and yet still uh, doesn't seem to see uh, 
to see the problem with uh, with how he's winning the hearts and minds of the population. No, I mean, that's what's so compelling about him. He seems utterly convinced, you know. He's yeah. like any great um, zealot. He's like, he's a believer himself. Oh, yeah, he, he was a great soldier. <laughs> and, you know, and he has this speech, which is actually quite beautiful and, and poignant and sad about, you know, how this flower of unity should grow out of the like kind of bloody wasteland that is Congo and that unless that happens, you know, we we will it will continue forever. And and like that is clearly true. The yeah. question is the the question we're left with is where where would that come from? Most often I get the question of, well, how do we fix it? How do we correct this? Yeah, and let me point out that I'm not, I don't think that it's our my job as an American to go fix sure, the sure. Congo. And I think that that's a dangerous impulse in some ways. But. Yeah, because I think <laughs> if we look at how the Western world has tried to fix things so far, uh, we end up hurting things more than helping more often than not. In fact, we should point out that like the first prime minister of Congo was assassinated by a CIA backed, is this correct? Yep, like yep. CIA backed yeah, rival the, the, ushering in the decades of corruption that followed, it ex seems. Exactly. I mean, this is right around the time when uh, America and Russia were deep in the Cold War. Uh, Congo's resource rich, a lot of uranium. They were fighting for control. Russia was backing Lumumba and the Americans and the Belgians were backing uh, Mobutu. So Mobutu became president. And he was, and, and they say like things were good for a while in the film. And then at some point he becomes this just vampire sucking all the resources. And Yeah, you know. yeah. He, he kind of unwinds into his own mania uh, and, and ultimately like, is his own demise. He became so paranoid of, of outsiders meddling with his reality that uh, he had some form of curable cancer that he refused to really go into the knife for because he was afraid of if they put him assassination. under assassination yeah <laughs> so you know okay wow yeah um, so he becomes he becomes like um scarface or johnny depp in the recent rolling stone portrait like increasingly eccentric and isolated in his sure. well i mean he you he know tanked. power well that and he, and he ended up just tanking <laughs> the the country where you know things were good when when mobutu initially took uh power uh, Congo was an incredibly powerful country, had a superpower uh, uh, military. Right. But by the time Congo uh, Zaire at the time uh, fell, the soldiers weren't being paid anymore. They were no longer loyal to to their president. It was the, the country was on its. It's heel. in a shambles. Yeah. yeah. This comes back to something I was talking about with Amy Chua, the political thinker, earlier this year. It's kind of all tribe. It's all about tribe. Like money, whether you're dividing people on economic strata, whether you're dividing them on ethnic tribe, yeah. you know, religion, it's all tribe. It's yeah. basically fanning the flames of tribal resentment between yeah, where groups. Where individuals' loyalties are, are held. Right. I guess the question is, you know, what forms of political power could exist that would not that would not use tribal use these tribal instincts in these ways. It seems like, you know, I, I guess there's better and worse, but it seems like they all do to some extent. It's, and it's tricky too, I think, especially in Africa where uh, ethnicity still is very woven into the culture of uh, people and into their identity. So right, uh, right. in a place like Congo where there are so many ethnic groups, it's really tough for uh, one to not perhaps either lean towards his own or seem like he's leaning towards it. It's always scrutinized in that way. Uh, and there's there's a certain responsibility within that culture, within that that tribal or ethnic group culture of of taking care of that group. So, right, uh, so right, to, right. to try and make decisions that don't involve that group is is really stepping away from your culture that your entire family has been based on. So it's and your basic yeah responsibilities yeah, as like, you understand. It's, it's them. almost comparative to to somebody who's religious walking away from their religion for the better of their country. And and I think that can maybe ring true for some listeners where it's if some things are really important to us so much so that it will change our vote. 
somehow this didn't occur to me, but the the nation state, the idea of the nation state is a, a relatively new idea and a Western import or colonial import to Africa. So this idea of being loyal to Congo as a whole, like that's a sort of, that's an innovation on top of centuries, millennia of tribal loyalty. Sure. And yeah. you, know, you go back to the borders that were drawn in Africa, which all happened in 1885 right. in Berlin. Right. There's a bunch of guys with, with poor cartography <laughs> divvying up the resources. And, and when you look at the, the conflicts and the resources of the country, uh, of many countries, in Congo, for example, they're all along the borders. And then on these borders, you're drawing these lines through tribal territories. So you're, you're then dividing people in this, you know, this Western kind of imposition, which it's, at the time really had nothing to do with, with democracy. It was about divvying up resources. Control, yeah. yeah. But it's so insidious how, like, even for me, even as I'm just talking right now, I'm realizing how insidious this narrative is in our minds. Like, I, being an American person educated in the way that I've been educated, even though I'm suspicious of it, I'm sort of locked into this historical narrative trajectory where we move from tribalism to nationalism to maybe some sort of global unity. And but that doesn't happy, reflect yeah. that, like, not everyone else is is on that narrative train. You know? No, not at all. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you've, you know, you still have, Congo's got, is home to the pygmies, one of the oldest indigenous peoples we have. And, and even if you look on a micro scale in the country, our children may not know what the pygmies are because their forests are being deforested, wildlife, uh, they're being pushed away from their homelands and being forced to integrate in with, with uh, larger Bantu culture. Now, is that a good thing for the pygmies because they can have clothes and go to school and church and, and pay taxes? Or is it not? Yeah, yeah. And it's really tough That's for us complex, to even decide. Yeah. It's really for them to decide and... And then often when you're, you're in these places where there are all these different interests, you know, you know, it, it becomes easy when you focus on one interest and you can almost solve it. But then the further you step back, the more you realize like, oh, the problem gets bigger. It expands and it exponentially increases to a point where almost a never ending cycle of conflict makes more sense than not. I found myself at one moment and then caught myself thinking, well, if at least if you have a strong central dictator, then the people have relatively secure lives. And it's like, God, like how sick does the situation yeah. have to be for that to seem rational, you know? And, and we can look at a bunch of countries where that's the reality too, and it still doesn't work, you know? Before we go to the second part of the show, I, I want to ask how you, having spent all that time over there making, making this documentary, how you think about or how you deal with, if you have them, those impulses to like Fix help. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you, like, where do you put that well, at this point? I think point? like, like in, in the process of making the film, which filming took us three and a half years just in filming, one of the most valuable lessons I learned, or if there was a secret ingredient it was me recognizing how wrong I could be or my own failures and allowing myself to stop with trying to, to use what database I had right. to understand what was going on and allow myself to listen to the Congolese themselves, specifically my own crew, you know? I mean, th these guys are living examples of people that have been focusing on what this is about their whole lives and to try and blast past them and say, oh, yeah, well, the problem is governance. You corrupt government and we got to do this. And yeah. the way you do that is stop conflict minerals. And I think the film was, was based upon me trying to force myself to listen instead of uh, uh, let things fill into this structure maybe I thought it was. Because the film I thought I was making when I started – doesn't even exist anymore. It's it, what, what, film, what did you think it was going to oh, be? I thought I was going to go, you know, the idea was oh, I want to make a film that, that looks, investigates, and meditates on the root causes of the conflict in the Congo. So, right. of course, I went in looking at rebels mining, rebels controlling resources, right. and uh, people being displaced and, and, you know, being raped, children being raped, and, and you know, the, kind of these hot items where we, this is all we see in the news. Right. Perpetually is the same thing. And and while sure, it's about resources, it's about armed rebellion, you know, the sexual violence is, is rampant and, and a tragedy there. But those, none of those are the root cause. 
Uh, and even trying to, to, to simply say like, oh, well, it's going to be uh, Leopold. And here's why it, it had, and this is where in the film, we, we had to have it come from the Congolese themselves. I wanted them to say it because uh, me trying to loop them around in an interview to get them to spit out something that I think they need to say was, was never getting me to where I, I wanted to go. Right. You know? Yeah, and I mean, and the, I don't know, the vexing thing is that once you've traced all those root causes, like if, say you're Congolese, like once you've traced all those root causes, and given that the Western powers or the Arab slave traders or whoever it is, not only can't swoop in and fix it, but definitely shouldn't given the history, you know, shouldn't be the ones to come meddling again. Where is that balance between the momentum? Where's the, yeah, where's the balance between the momentum of history and like what you do today? And like, can you get out of it? You know, how do you? Yeah, like how how can we guide without, manipulating things in, in, a, in a Western way. I mean, well, I was thinking even just for the people themselves. And I mean, this gets really fraught because like when you talk about, for example, reparations for slavery, right? And then you have the sort of defensive sort of right-leaning people going, well, that's the past and we should move on. It's like, well, obviously you can't just move on from the past. And yet at the same time, you also have to at some point. And much to how you began this, where it's uh, the title of the film, This is Congo, it it appears in the end of the film and it kind of comes more as a question of like, is anybody looking at why? And when you do look at why, you you find so many components that you really can't walk back, you can't unweave. And, and it does, I think, leave many people who, who invest themselves into trying to understand these conflicts feeling quite hopeless because there's no other way you can feel. Yet my impressions just in working in the Congo and then what, uh, what we as the filmmakers really tried to infuse into the film was there is this overwhelming sense of hope. There is this cultural richness within the country that comes from this diversity. Uh, there are these immense natural resources and immense, nat- immense na- uh, natural beauty. I mean, there is so much there that is hopeful, that is beautiful, that things can be built upon, you know, if, if these resources are managed properly. Congo will be a superpower. We'll have our brain surgeries in Kinshasa. <laughs> but it's uh, it's trying to untangle this seemingly untangleable web. I don't know. I don't know how to do it. My my hope for this film is that it maybe gives somebody or, or viewers or, or people just a bit more of a foothold to dig deeper on their own or to understand more than just the surface kind of knee-jerk news reports we often get. To demystify this conflict, I think, is a huge component in, in people understanding it. You know, Education is going to be the, the tool that brings peace. So that brings us to the second half of the show, which is where Big Things video team have chosen some surprise clips for us to watch. And we may well circle back to some of these subjects, but we'll see where it goes. All right, this is uh, Steven Pinker, the psychologist, um, and it's called Democracy, Still the Worst Kind of Government Except All the Other Kinds. Probably the most famous product of the Enlightenment was the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution, a uh, blueprint for a form of governance that um, tried to get the benefits of, uh, of government seeing as how anarchy is worse because you get spirals of vendetta and feuding and violence. You don't get the coordination of uh, large-scale economies without some kind of governance. So how do you get the benefits of governance without the perennial uh, hazard that anyone given a bit of power will aggrandize their power and, uh, and, and become uh, despotic? So the uh, checks and balances of American democracy were a way of, uh, I think of it as negotiating a middle route between the, the violence of uh, anarchy, and anarchy does lead to violence. Uh, the, uh, we were not never noble savages that lived in, in harmony. Regions of the world without uh, government are almost invariably violent, but also avoiding the violence of tyranny. Namely, you give someone power, they're gonna use it to maximize their benefits, their power, their uh, longevity of their reign uh, at the expense of people. Democracy is a way of getting, of, of steering between these extremes, of having a government that, that exerts 
just enough violence to prevent people from preying on each other without preying on the people itself. Now, in practice, it's, uh, no one has ever developed a democracy that works particularly well. If, if judged in absolute terms, democracies are always uh, messy, they're always unequal, they always involve lobbying and power grabs, but all the alternatives so far have been worse. Uh, democracies uh, seldom go to war with each other, they have higher standards of living, they have higher levels of happiness, they have higher levels of health, and they're the obvious preferred destinations for people who vote with their feet. The whole world wants to live in a democracy. Uh, it's an ongoing project. It's uh, currently under threat from a number of directions, but there's never been a time in which we've had a well-functioning democracy in terms of meeting all the uh, criteria in a high school civics class. Well, you know, it's, I've been thinking a lot about this, especially in the last few days, uh, just with all that's happening here in America politically. And I mean, this last year has been uh, a roller coaster. Yeah, we live in interesting times, yeah, as the yeah. proverb goes. I think, yeah, and, and that's where <laughs> thinking about democracy, I, I've done more, more now than I ever have. But again, what's, what's really interesting about seeing this clip in the context of Congo is while all this has been happening this past year here in the States, I'm constantly referring back to my experiences in the Congo, where uh, seeing these things that are so foreign to, uh, to, to me, to us, to, to the Western world, these systems of control and how, how people are manipulated and how things like education or, or media or your loyalty, whether it's to an ethnic group or a religious group or whatever, are these these little strings that are pulled. And now I'm kind of watching all that happen here in the States, which I feel ashamed and, and naive to, to think that I didn't really see. I mean, I guess we all kind of knew it in a sense, but now in, in the age of Trump, it's all for better or for worse, it's all right there at the surface. And, and I'm thinking yeah. about the same things. I mean, uh, I mean, for the comfortable, you know, more or less comfortable middle class that I grew up in in America, like there was always a sense of real security. I mean, we didn't know how good we had it compared to like, unless you go visit Congo or yeah. something. But, but there was always a sense that like this system is basically secure. Totally. And that that is getting rattled now. Yeah, the American dream. I mean, we, you know, I feel like, you know, America spoon, spoon fed me these uh, these like fantasies of, of like I can I can do anything I want. And, and of course, being a white male certainly helps things a lot here in America. Sure. But uh, but this, you know, this like the, the sky is the limit and, and, you know, trust yourself and, and all this stuff. But it really only exists in that one reality that I was living in, not outside of America, not behind the curtain of America. Right. So Yeah, and we behave, I mean, the way that the U.S. behaves abroad, like our foreign policy since the yeah. Cold War and maybe before, oh, but certainly since the Cold War has been like... Evil. We're in, evil, man. Incredibly undemocratic, yeah. to say the least. Yeah, I mean, just exactly. This just our since 2000, you know, we've... Back dictators. And, and, and before, even to say that is 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 moronic. I mean, it's, it's since <laughs> always, you know, yeah, yeah. so... Uh, so yeah, it's it, it makes me think about like the the comforts of of my upbringing and, and as you mentioned, but and and how others don't necessarily have that, but but also it kind of shakes my my trust and faith in this as he describes it this uh, this project or this experiment. You know, we're we're seeing how democracy works, and it's quite frustrating to watch that with like the more information you get and the more experience you have the, the more ridiculous things start to become and, you know i think the idea of ending tyranny you know on which the country was founded i think the idea of the pursuit of happiness although granted at the outset of the country there were plenty of people living in slavery and pursuit of happiness was not distributed as a wide right but i mean these concepts as the foundation of a government they seem pretty good yeah sounds like good ideas well i mean and they are good ideas yeah they are good ideas the idea of human rights individual human rights as the government's job is to preserve individual human rights as against abuse by 
by authority. It all sounds great. The question I'm perpetually asking myself now is, is like, well, all right, well then where, where is it going wrong? How is it? It's, it's as if we've, we've created a board game where there's like a couple of like loopholes and then the only board play that's happening is inside of the loopholes and that's right. our reality and it's right. just like right and it's then when in you talk and now. then when you talk to people who understand politics like sociologists you know and and like political theorists they're basically like well uh, this is how statesmanship is done and that's how it always was and it's like you know you can't <laughs> i don't see how you can have it both ways. You know, I don't see how you can have that vision and at the same time say, well, actually everything is an ambivalent two-sided reality where people are playing shadowy games of manipulation at the power level. I mean, it feels like there needs to be a change and like we aren't this, this, we can call it a two-party system really is not working or at least didn't feel like it's working. Right. Maybe it is behind some grand plan that President Trump has. When you talk about Congo, you talk about this like kind of hope and potential that's there for the people. And when you, Daniel, talk about America, I, I'm hearing you in a somewhat cynical place with respect yeah, to where. I mean, <laughs> totally. I, I, I guess that one of the big differences is that I'm, I'm starting my, my idea of cultural richness here in America is, is waning a bit. And maybe that's just because I'm confused at where we are today, but all those things growing up that felt American and great and apple right. pie and, and, cheddar cheese or, or whatever, it's now I'm like, ah, oh, man, this is, what's with this? You know, all the food sucks. All the, and, 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 and I'm generalizing, but you know. No, but yeah, we're seeing things homogenized yeah, and corporatized. Cities, and, old, beautiful you know. cities built out of brick that have been abandoned to build another city 30 miles away to frack the, you know, to destroy the environment and, right. and small businesses, craftsmanship, uh, all this stuff. It's It feels like it's, it's not the way I, it, the dream isn't, what I thought it should be. Right. And it feels like it's maybe different. And then I question myself, is it different? You know, like when we used to build muscle cars that were the best <laughs> in the world, was that as awesome and as, uh, you know, should I stand behind that as proudly as I do? I don't know. You know, America has always had this side of sort of entrepreneurial boosterist progress, yeah. which doesn't necessarily have anything in mind except the aggrandizement of individuals and the yeah. distributing of more stuff that people may or may not work need. hard, like, and you're going to get everything you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, there is that component which I don't think was embedded in the like Constitution or the Declaration of Independence but that has emerged as a kind of cultural principle of America too. you know, and, get and more, get more, do it faster, do it. Sure. Better, yeah. Uh, we created celebrity. We, we have movies and, and music and, and uh, sports and, and all these fantastic things. And, you know, just in the way uh, the tobacco industry inserted themselves into the movies, like is, patriotism doing that <laughs> is it like what 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 is real like what is uh what are these things that i identify with and, and you know i mean of course i'm i'm being cynical like of course family is huge and, and the natural beauty of the country is incredible and i mean i think that if other experiments are attempted we should be careful and smart to try to not throw the baby out with the bathwater of the good things that are embedded in these basic ideas of the United States, you know? Like if all of that stuff emerged and became corrupt and flowered into a poison fruit, then fine. But if we re want to replace it with some sort of collectivism or whatever, let's be careful not to let, you know, to try to avoid the same things that the early Republic was trying to avoid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky thing. And, and I mean, just in the same way, like I'm, I'm struggling to try and put my finger on all these things. And I think a lot of us have, that's, I, it's the same in a place like the Congo. It's the same, it's such a human story that we're all kind of reading uh, and reacting to and and it's different components while in Congo it's one thing here we've got other major issues to deal with yeah sometimes you just have to shut up and listen and s stop that impulse to like wrap the explanatory mind around everything and fix it you know sure and you know while the the country is or feels like it's perhaps becoming more and more divided I think now is the time when we need to like 
put ourselves in the other person's shoes. You now we probably hear that all the time, and it's probably harder now than ever. But it's probably more needed now than ever. Yeah, uh, for us to understand where uh, where people are, you know, and as you said, the shrinking middle class, putting people uh, in a destabilized scenario, and and when that happens, we're going to react. And, and we're going to react according to, or, yeah, with fear, or, or according to our ethnic group or our tribe, you know, whatever it is that we're holding dear, and and the those that are around us, you know, it's an emotional time, and those emotions can carry us away. I'm just trying to figure it all out. I'm, I, in fact, my next project. I'm I've been doing a lot of research into working on something here in the states. I have absolutely no idea what it is, but it's of this kind of school of thought where I'm like, well, I got to take myself out of my comfort zone. I got to, yeah. I got to like, can't stop pretending I understand the problem because I clearly don't. I'm very excited that you're thinking in that direction because I loved what you did with this film and this is sorely needed. And yet we've been having, you know, this conversation has come up with friends of mine, like how people in our sort of liberal coastal elite bubble are, and I hate like kind of all of those words, but I suppose one must be in the bubble that one is in, that there's this impulse now to go in and try to like understand that other world, right? And that we have to be careful about how we tell, how we do that so that it's not number one, only one-sided, right? Because we don't see a ton of people coming out of coming from the right and trying to like understand the liberal mind. Like we're not, we're not seeing that impulse. We're not seeing those documentaries. Right. You know? And so how does this not become some sort of like carpet bagging anthropological study, you know, from people like, what explain what makes you tick and why you voted for this idiot, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, (laughs) it's, uh, while not knowing any, any idea of, of how I'm going to even attempt this or or how to even approach it in my mind, I I know it's, it's got to kind of come from uh, an unexpected place. And, uh, in order to get somebody to truly identify or to understand another person's position, you have to from a filmmaking perspective, right. if I'm to make a film about this, I'd want the the liberal to to identify to see themselves in the conservative. Now, how do you get? How do you match those two things up? When when now those that division is intense. Uh, uh, it can be the way we dress, the way we look, the way we speak. So there are these components, these like walls that we already have pre built in front of us to like we're predisposed. Oh, you voted for Trump. Oh, you, you know, you voted for Hillary. Cool. Now we're, we have these two giant walls between us. Yeah. And and it's as a filmmaker, I got to figure out a way of like turning those, those walls into, to clear water. The drifting off is that it's right in that zone where we're like, uh, I feel lost or I'm losing my, my focus. What there's something in that cloud that hopefully I think, uh, and I mean, I'd love to be able to crack that, uh, that egg, but uh, but I think that's what we need in terms of it films, content, need. music, art, you know, uh, journalism. It is what we need. We need uh, we need to to have things that are bringing us close. And it sounds cheesy saying it, but like really brings us closer together. And and I think if we can do that, we'll start respecting the uh, these cultural riches that we have, like. Uh, of course, like every example that pops in my mind, I, I'm like vetoing it. Like I want to say cowboy and like eventually <laughs> like we'll lose. And of course, I could shoot that down because cowboys were like a bunch of like roaming criminals initially <laughs> or something that were uh, black and Mexican. And now we imagine there's these white guys that are <laughs> around. But, you know, it's what's destabilized me the most is is just the way in which we're receiving information where... You know, we hear the term fake news all the time where those of us who are on Facebook, I'm sure, are like beating our heads, being like, oh, God, I got to I got to quit this thing. This is ridiculous. It's siphoning my time. And I'm looking at ads. And how do they know what I was Googling? You know, well, I mean, all I see in my Facebook feed is just an endless stream of liberal outrage of my friends, you know, just about every new thing, which I like I get I I but is it Feel doing the same anything? thing, yeah. yeah. But 
You're all in the in the in the clubhouse yeah, talking yeah. about the same thing. Yeah, yeah, everyone's just like, "This is outrageous. This is you know ground zero for democracy at this moment." We, you know, I have one friend who is constantly, constantly, basically the message that she puts out, and she's a very smart person. Is where will you have been when history looks back at you? Like what you know, what yeah, will you? The guy not raising his hand. Right, right. Are you one of the Germans who sat by while the Nazis took over? the country. And it's like all of those impulses I understand, but I'm not sure any of that is advancing anything. I generally try to avoid political discussions because they always devolve into meaningless yeah, yeah, yeah. bickering or whatever. Well, let's but, stay high level. But, but, but what I love about Trump, which I don't think I've ever really said, <laughs> but is, uh, is right now we're talking about this. We're having these discussions and whether, you know, there's a lot of bad things happening, you know, we have kids getting separated oh, from their funny. parents and all. but for the you know this wasn't happening i wasn't i was completely uh neck deep in africa trying to decode uh, you know oh what's going on over here in this continent that i grew up as this like far off land that's in, afflicted by uh and now i'm like whoa man i have been sleeping at the wheel at home and if Clinton were elected, I'd, I'd be doing the same thing. It's I'd funny. Kind it's of be asleep at the wheel. The you know? only person on this show in 150 plus episodes who said something similar to what you just said was Slavoj Žižek. And he's like a Hegelian, you know, sort of looking at cycles of history. And his view of Trump is that it's he's sort of this destabilizing force in, in history that perhaps in the end shakes things up in such a way that change is possible, you know? Sure, you know, it's when you throw a brick through the window, you make lemonade. And, and while everybody's now is like the call to action for protest and for really uh, mobilizing, I think we also need to really keep that back window open so the unexpected can climb in and, and tap us on the shoulder. Daniel McCabe, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on Think Again. Thanks for having me. It's been a great time. And uh, Daniel's new film, This Is Congo, when when is it out in theaters? It's It's been in theaters here in New York. Uh, we had our premiere on June 29th. Yeah. Right. In New York. June 29th, which in New York was the LA. 58th anniversary of the film. Yeah, the 30th of the... was, I was trying to think of the Friday was the 29th, I believe. And we started in New York and LA, and now we're in select cities nationwide. We're kind of like slowly making the rounds because it's tough to get people hip to the fact they should go watch a movie about Congo. But uh, to check it out, you can go to the film's website, thisiscongo.com, and, and see where it's playing. And then this fall, it'll be on the Stars Network and, uh, and iTunes. It's, it's really worth watching. Thanks. Thanks again, Daniel. Thank you. Hey, so that wraps up this week's episode of Think Again. And the show and I are going on vacation for a couple of weeks. We will be back on Saturday, September 15th with Emily Nemens, the new editor of the Paris Review. In the meantime, feel free to connect with us on Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast on Facebook. That's our private discussion group. Uh, drop me an email at jason at bigthink.com, letting me know why you enjoy the show, what it means to you, or anything else that you'd like to. And I'll see you soon with something completely different and an incredible lineup of shows for this fall. I hope you can join us. <laughs>